There yeah. were years I thought she went to law school to get me out of jail. So <laughs> my father used to say to my sister, you know, you have to go to law school in case Jill gets in trouble. You're going to have to get her out of jail. <laughs> You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. Thank you for listening to Hawk Talk. We're here today with Jill Zarin. How are you? I am so good and so nice to meet you, Eric. You as well. Thank you for being on. So to dive in, you know, how I always like to look at things is I assume, and maybe I'm wrong, but at four years old, you didn't know you were going to be a celebrity, an entrepreneur, have a major business, you know, have built this amazing career. So where did it start? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? My yeah. dad is senior, my 91 year old yeah. daddy would probably tell you that you're wrong. That, and that's, yeah. Five years old, I did want to be famous and I yeah. was in all the acting classes, even though I can't act, but I mean, I signed up for everything. And my sister, when this all started, said that we used to, when I don't remember this at all, said we used to play a game called Career. I actually bought it on eBay. We never uh-huh. played it. It didn't come in time that year, so I don't know where it is, but it's called <laughs> Career. And you you know, got points or something about choosing what you're going to be. And my sister said you could put like different amount of points on different things. And I put all of it on Famous. Yeah. So it was just, I, I want to be famous. I must have been six years old. So. All right. So it did start early. Do you know where that came from? Like where the desire for fame started? No. no. And where'd you grow up? I grew up in Woodmere, Long Island, the five towns. You're probably too young to know. My mom's from Lawrence. No. Yep. Oh my God. She went to Lawrence High School? Yep. Wait, do you know how old's your mom? 65. She's closer to my sister's age. Yeah. That is crazy. I went to Lawrence High School. I graduated in 81. Your mom graduated in the 70s. She had the fun years. She was like Woodstock, not Woodstock, but like the She's a little young, yeah. But yeah. (laughs) Studio 54 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. She knew all those people. Yeah. And her best friend, my godmother, Jill Oppenheimer. I don't know what Jill's maiden name was, but Jill went to Lawrence as well. I don't know her. She lives in Hewitt now. My godmother lives in Hewitt. You live in LA. Why would I think you ever, and you're 30. Of course, yeah. You know the five towns. (laughs) Yeah. Do you hear the accent now? Do you hear that accent? Oh, yeah. No, that's why I asked. It was was a little bit of leading. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town called Ojai, north of LA. Oh, so your mom moved out there years later. Okay, your yeah. mom. Okay. Yeah, she actually won a prize on a radio show to get a free trip to California and stayed. Yeah. Are you kidding me? When she was, I think, 21, 22, something like that. That's like so cliche. She yeah. won a prize and she never left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so you're growing up in the five towns on Long Island. And tell me about it. Like, I'm curious what led you to this. That's the whole point of this is like, what led you to wanting to... I think I was probably destined in the sense that I definitely wanted it, but there was no avenue. I didn't act and I didn't sing. So if you didn't act or sing, how are you going to be famous? Because that's all you could do back then. But then reality came. And now you could be famous for nothing, as Paris Hilton so famously did. But we all know she's a genius and it was hardly for nothing. Like, you know, that whole fake dumb blonde. We all saw now in her documentary, although I'm very good friends with her mom, so I know the family well. Yeah, her boyfriend's a close friend of mine. So I don't want to, you know, disparage her at all. But what I mean, you know, she was the original being famous for doing nothing. But again, it was never something that I looked that I would do. But it, it was a vehicle that was out there. And I literally got Hollywood called. That's my story. Hollywood called. 
Yeah. My phone call. They asked me if I wanted to be on a reality show. Why did they call you? What were you doing? Like, how did that progress? Okay. So Bravo, Bravo already had a show called The Real Housewives of Orange County. Mm-hmm. Then they wanted to do a show, allegedly, I don't know if it was ever really true, allegedly called Manhattan Moms. Yeah. I don't know if I should really ask Andy Cohn if that was ever really it or was it a ruse to get the Real Houses of New York because they knew nobody would do it if it was called the Real Houses of New York. I got to ask Andy that. That's such a good <laughs> question to ask him. So anyway, Bravo hired a production company called Shed Media to cast this show. I learned later on there was a pit of young kids, you know, in their 20s sitting in a big room with those half walls yeah. in LA in a little nondescript office building across the street from Universal Studios, uh-huh. you know, no doorman, no nothing. You're coming through the garage, up an elevator, you know, no sign on the door. And they literally told these kids to go find women who want to be on a show called Manhattan Moms. Yeah. And they had no idea how to do this. And they told me that afterwards. They had no idea. So yeah. they went on the internet and this particular guy who found me, who's, you know, really should be credited for the whole franchise, if you ask me. He literally went online and he was looking for New York socialites. Like he uh-huh. typed in New York socialites and he came across a website called New York social diary, which back then was one of the few New York society online pages back then. I mean, this is before Twitter. This is before any of that. Yeah. And he came across the New York social diary. He's going through photos and he sees a photo of my daughter and I at a charity event. Uh-huh. And he dials like 911 and uh, not 911, 411 yeah. to get my phone number and I'm listed. So he sees Jill Zarin in the thing and he dials Jill Zarin. He calls Jill Zarin, says, hi. And he had a British accent, which I won't try to do, but he says, I remembered exactly. Hi, my name is James Davis. I'm calling from Ricochet Television. We produce Super Nanny. We are casting for a show called Manhattan Moms about glamorous moms and their kids in New York City. If you're interested, give me a call. Hollywood called. So I asked. Bobby, what do you think? Is it a scam? Well, no, you know, Super Nanny's not a scam. So called him back. He told me to put my family on a little tape. A friend of mine was a producer of reality at the time. And he came over and did actually literally had the camera with the tape. Yeah. But I mailed the tape to LA. The internet was still Wait, AOL. What year was this? 2006. Okay. Yeah. I mean, AOL was still big and there was no, <laughs> you couldn't email a video. It was too yeah. big. It was slow. We were still dialing, I think, you know, to AOL at the time. I think. I'm not 100% sure. So I did the video, five minutes. Hi, this. my name's Jill Zarin. This is my husband, Bobby. This is Allie and my little dog, Ginger. And she goes to private school and I work with my husband and his family business, blah, blah, blah. They liked it. They called me and they said, we want to send somebody to New York to follow you for the day. And they did. And I had this great husband named Brad who was working with me at Zarin Fabrics. And listen, did we amp it up? Of course. So yeah. they followed me at work and then I took a bunch of girlfriends out for dinner, which I would never normally do during the week. And we went shopping yeah. at Barney. We picked up Allie at school, at her private school. I took her to Barney shopping, which I would never do. Yeah. You know, amped it up a little bit because I yeah. wanted to make my sizzle reel sizzle. Yeah. And that's where it all began. They loved the tape. They called me up. They loved the tape, but the show did not get greenlit. They had greenlit a different show that they were working on about like heavy people losing weight. That was <laughs> So that they got greenlit, not our show. Yeah. So that was it. And then six months later, I get a call from them saying, we have great news. We've been greenlit. Like I knew what that meant, by the way. What that yeah. meant is the network wants you. Yeah. So I'm like, well, what does greenlit mean again? I was having lunch in the Hamptons with my daughter. And I'm like, you're too late. What do you mean no too late? We're done with New York. We're in the Hamptons now for the summer. And they said, well, we don't care about that. We'll film you in the Hamptons. But we have a problem. We don't have enough girls. Do you have any friends? Yeah, And then I started introducing them and finding, and I found Luann, I got Bethany, Ramona came through a friend of mine, and then it was the four of us 
plus the people from Brooklyn, Alex and Simon, who also were cast for another show about young parents and kindergarten children that never got picked up. So they kind of funneled them into this show and they became kind of the outcast. Yeah. You know, the out of, not the outcast, the out of borough. Were the Takemans a part of that too? Josh Takeman? I know. No. Okay. Years later, and I never saw her. So she got was it. like season eight or some yeah. season in there. Got it, got it. I, I was only on one through four, but let me tell you, I made it last. They're on 12, and you'd think I'm still on the show with the amount of, you know, meteor I still. Yeah. Do. And so what led to that? Like, you, you obviously, when they found you, you were a New York socialite. Like, let's take a step back. Growing up in Woodmere, like, tell me more about childhood, high school, like, what happened in early well, life? Definitely not the popular kid. And that was a big insecurity for me. So mm-hmm. I think that wanting to be famous was also part of the insecurity of wanting to say, look at me now, I made it. And I think a lot of people who become famous, if you really dig in and they're honest, they would say the same thing, especially comedians. Most of them were misfits. Like they self-proclaimed misfits, never fit in, blah, 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 blah. And they wanted to, you know, they used humor to compensate and then, you know, became famous to say, you know, F you, I made it. And I think I had a little bit of that. For sure. You want to go to your high school reunion in 30 years and say, look at me now. Yeah, I think most people have that. (laughs) We know they're lying. Yeah. No, enough movies about that as well. Romeo and Michelle invented the post-it note. You know, it's it's good. And so you graduate high school. Did you stay in the five towns? Did you move to the city? Like what happened? Getting out of you know, I like, I was a very fast kid growing up. Like, you know, I stole my parents' car when I was 15. You know, not stole it, like I borrowed it, you know, yeah. to drive to my boyfriend's house. A bunch of times didn't get caught. Then I did get caught. <laughs> and uh, my dad didn't tell me that they knew I took the car. But what he did is he showed up at school the next day and asked to see me. And they said, oh, she's in class. And he goes, really? Go find her. And I wasn't there. And yeah. that night at dinner, he didn't say a word. And the oh. next day I go to school, they called me into the you know principal's office or whatever. And they said, where were you yesterday? And I said, oh, I was sick. I was homesick. Yeah. Really? Yes. Well, your father was here yesterday and he's looking for you, you know, and I got what's called the rubber room for a day. <laughs> uh, never did that again. But my point was, is that I was fast and I was, you know, partying and I was sneaking to New York City when I was 15, 16, going to discos like Xenon, trying to get into Studio 54. I think eventually I got in right before close, you know, standing there waiting to be picked, all that stuff, you know, and I say that because versus my daughter who grew up with such a more normal, healthy childhood, she still doesn't drive. She doesn't want to drive. And how old is she now? Uh, 28. Oh, that's, yeah. My mom, again, who grew up in the same town, she waited till I think 19 or 20 to get her license. So I was stealing the car at 15. So I couldn't couldn't wait to go. Yeah, I couldn't wait to move on with my life. I ended up going to an all-girls college in Boston called Simmons, and I majored in retail management. I was very focused. I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a buyer. I wanted to be in fashion. Uh And I became a buyer at Filene's Department Stores in Boston. I stayed up there for seven years, Uh met my future husband. Quickly on a blind date, he was in New York. I was there. Eight weeks later, we're engaged. Three months later, I was, and I was 23. I was ready because I had lived my life completely by the time I was 16. And it's funny because I thought I dated like everybody. But in reality, if I look back on my life, I've probably, you know, been with like 10 guys, you yeah. know, which is very low number compared to what's going on today. That's for sure. <laughs> I three marriages. Well, one marriage, divorce, one my husband died, and now I've got a great boyfriend, Gary. Yeah. So growing up in the five towns was very fast, you mm-hmm. know, and it was very, you know, unhealthy in the way of, you know, like bigger and better and very showy money, new money. And I was caught up in that. Vice versa, my sister was the complete opposite. You wouldn't even think we grew up in the same country. My sister was an honor student, uh-huh. left 
high school after 11th grade to go to Johns Hopkins in a special program where you could become a freshman and finish your high school senior year at the same time. Because she was very mature, but in a different way. Yeah. And when she went on to go to law school, she got married at 21 to her college, the first guy she ever really dated, you know, totally different. I was the party girl. Yeah. Yeah. So we're very, very different. Even though we're from the same house, you would never know. And it's always funny how that happens. Like siblings seem to, even if you're raised the same way, the same household, you can end up so different. So different. It's really incredible. But you know, my path was great. And uh, my sister's very proud of me of how everything turned out. There were years I thought she went to law school to get me out of jail. So (laughs) my father used to say to my sister, you know, you have to go to law school in case Jill gets in trouble. You're going to have to get her out of jail. (laughs) Perfect. Oh, we're in the family. It's important. Well, I put myself in risky situations when I was young. Yeah. Like any of us did. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And so, all right. So you get married at 23. You moved to the city, it sounds like. Well, so I immediately moved to Manhattan. I gave up my job. I got a job in, in selling and I was selling men's dress shirts and neckties. And then I went to selling socks where I stayed for my career. And I ended up president of a very large sock company. Uh, Great American Knitting Mills had a, a division called Jockey Hosiery amongst Golto and some other brands. So I did really well professionally. But after I got divorced, I met Bobby Zarin, the love of my life. And it's a storybook. You know, he was also married, getting divorced, and I was married, getting divorced, and we found each other. And how do you, you guys know, find each other? It's you know multiple different ways. It was shared. I I went to his store once. His son was a roommate of my nephew in camp. Okay. And I a visiting day to visit him. Bobby was there, and we met again. And then I ran into him. We really started dating when I took Allison to Chelsea Pierce Bowling. He was uh-huh. playing golf with his son there. And when we left bowling, he left golf. We ran into each other. And then I knew his son from that He stayed with me over the summer when it, my nephew was in camp. I took them to my house one weekend. Anyway, so we said, let's have lunch. And then the rest is history. You know, it was like. Awesome. You know, and you said you mentioned it a little while ago. You, you ended up working with him, too. Is that right? I did because I stopped working in socks. I was traveling all the time and, you know, Bobby was sort of semi-retired and he wanted to have fun. So, you know, I'm not, what am I going to choose? So I went yeah. for the fun. But in reality, I, you know, I'm not the kind of girl who'll sit at home. Even the pandemic, which I know we haven't gotten to, yeah. I didn't sit home more than one minute before I started to do something, whether it was right. making money or donating time, it didn't matter. I can't yeah. sit still. So I went to work with him and I, I did marketing with him and I helped him grow his business, made a lot of mistakes, mm-hmm. but also made a lot of successes. And how was that? Because, uh, you know, it's always an interesting dynamic, husband and wife working together. Sometimes it works really well and sometimes it's literally the end of the marriage. So I'm curious, how was that with you guys? I knew my place. You know what I mean? I yeah. knew where I fit in. Bobby was the boss, yeah. but I was the queen. So he let me do whatever I wanted. And only on big decisions did he ever have a say. And Bobby never cared much about anything to really care about anything except me. I mean, that was kind of our marriage. He only cared about me. Everything else didn't matter. And that's the way a marriage should be. Yep. Fair enough. And with Gary, you know, Gary doesn't care about anything but me and my daughter. That's it. Yep. Agreed. That's important. And so when did you start working together? When did that all happen? What year was that? Bobby and I? Yeah. Right around when I started the show. Like, no, before, maybe before the show. So maybe 2005. Okay, got it. Because Brad was already there, so I had renovated the store already. So we we expanded the store, we renovated, and then the show came, and it was great because it's PR for the store. Right. I mean, people still email me. I'm coming to New York from London, and I'm going to come by and say hi. I'm like, I haven't been in Zarin Fabrics in seven years. (laughs) So I was going to say, so, you know, you were on the show, what, 06 to 2010? Filmed in 06? Four years. And during that time, were you still working really hard on the store and on the fabric company, or were you really focused more on the show? I did the show. You can't do both. It's right. a full-time job. Yeah. And, you know, you try to, 
certainly in the beginning, because we didn't know anything, I was, but it takes up so much amount of time. Even when you're not filming anymore, you're promoting the show, you're doing press, and then you become a brand. And if you're smart, you take advantage of the of press. Listen, I licensing, I've had it all. I've had jewelry, I've had bedding. I started a line called Squeeze Couture, which was in every department store. Now my rug line, you know, I'll do eight figures this year in rugs, oh. which unheard of you know yeah. it's and it's a license and then i started you know jill and alley masks so yeah. that that i own that's not a license and i have a couple of other licenses that i'm working on right now and did you do all that not the mask but everything else were you doing it during that filming period or did you wait till after 2010 to release oh no during filming you did great oh, yeah i got on it real quick real quick i had squeeze couture and jewelry while i was on the show Got it. And so 2010 hits, did you, I, I honestly don't know the story. Did you just leave the show? What ended up happening? You know, it's a combination of who you want to believe and who you, what you hear, what rumor you hear. But the real yeah. truth is, is Bobby and I were overheard talking about the show and leaving at a restaurant and the New York Post overheard it. And it was in the Post and it said, Jill and Bobby are thinking of leaving the show. They were overheard talking at a restaurant, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That kind of planted a seed with Bravo. Because Bravo it. never likes to, people to quit. Yeah, you know, without their without their blessing or whatever, I don't think anybody does. So I had I have a lot of anxiety, and the show I I wasn't in Hollywood. I didn't understand how TV works. I didn't understand, you know, that you're really you have no control, no power. You just sit and wait for the phone to ring. You sit and wait for your agent. I didn't know any of this. Okay, I'm my own boss. I make decisions very quickly. Some are right, some are wrong. So when we were getting into season five. I'm like, are we doing it or are we not doing it? Are we picked up or are we not picked up? It's been five months since we filmed, a month and a half since the reunion. What's going on? And yeah. I have hands in my pants. And Bobby wants to go on vacation and take a three-week cruise around the world on the ship called The World. And if we're not doing the show, the trip was in September. If we are doing the show, I'm not doing the trip. And I couldn't get an answer. And I was so frustrated that one night I emailed the people I shouldn't have emailed, including the cast, by the way, saying... Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. It's too much. You know, Bobby had already been diagnosed with cancer the first time. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, life is short. We're done. And then I kind of had buyer's remorse the next day, but I never said anything. I figured, well, no one. And also, I think there was the underlying thing that I really wanted them to beg me to stay. Yeah. I think I wanted them to say, Jill, you can't leave. We love you. Well, that didn't happen. In fact, not only did that not happen, they publicly fired me. Yeah, it sounded like they were angling for something. Once that New York Post article came out, they were probably angling for something anyway. So that, you know, once they have that doubt I, and it happened. I'm watching, I'm watching now things that I didn't realize for 10 years that reinforces what I thought, which is like, for instance, Dorinda is not on the show this season. And I think one of the reasons why is because she said multiple times, whether it was true or I don't know, she said that, you know, she thinks that she needs some time, mm -hmm. you know, that it's too much for her. And I think when Bravo hears that, they're like, okay, well, we're going to make it real easy for you. <laughs> You're not coming back. And I saw that happen. And, and, and she may go back next year. I don't know. I'm just saying that they heard it and they acted on it. And they did that yep. with somebody else. And I can't remember who, where they kind of said, you know, it's too much for me, whatever. And I think they felt like me. They wanted to be like, please stay. And yeah. they were told, you know, take a season off. Yeah. And so after that, what'd you do? 2010, you went on a three-week trip, it I sounds like. A three-week trip with my assistant and my stepson. And yeah. they ended up hooking up and they're getting married. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. You know, it's more than that. But I think it started then. Well, because I was too cheap, I didn't want to pay for three rooms. So I made them <laughs> share a room. <laughs> 
Yeah, what didn't even I, know you were playing matchmaker. They were like brother and sister. I didn't know it was like incest, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, very happy for them. And, and yeah. they seem to be very happy. But uh, they kept it secret from me for a while. So that was kind of annoying. Yeah, no, you, yeah, fair enough. And so give me the past decade. So 2010 to 2020, what, what were you doing? What was going on? Um, you know, my husband got sick. He mm-hmm. got sicker and sicker. So there was some good years. And then he started, to, and a lot of our time was taken up with, you know, medical, a lot of medical, mm-hmm. going to doctors, you know, having treatments, getting worse, getting better, getting worse. You know, it's all encompassing. He suffered yeah. cancer for seven years. He was diagnosed 10 years before, but really it started with like the last five years and really bad the last 18 months. So, you know, when I think back to that time, what did I do? A lot of it was that, but we traveled. Yeah. We, went on a, we went on a private plane around the world with 20 other couples through exclusive okay. resorts for three weeks, trip of a lifetime to Asia. I can't tell you how many trips we made. I mean, that was like a highlight. We went on a another exclusive resorts is a private membership club that we belong to and they have these exotic, crazy trips. We pretty much went everywhere, but the only place we didn't get to that I wanted to go was Africa. We never made it on a safari, but we did make it to Antarctica. That's awesome. That's on my list. Oh, and it should be. We could talk about that later. I was saying, our, our honeymoon, my wife and my honeymoon was Africa, was Kenya and Tanzania. Highly yeah. recommend it. I know. I would do it now with the pandemic. I'm sure there's nobody traveling. We just signed up to go to Rwanda in June, hoping that it's good by then. Even the gorillas? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. That's a little dangerous. I wanted to do it, but I didn't think Bobby was physically up to it. And that's why we're doing it now as pre-kids and all that. We're like, let's just go. We got to get it out. Let's get it out of the way when we have no one else relying on us. <laughs> you should join exclusive resorts. It's great. Yeah. Um, yes. But we went to Australia. We went to the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, we really huh. traveled heavily. We had a beautiful house in the Hamptons. We bought an apartment in Miami. We have a house in Boca. We lived in the city. We have a great life. Yep. We had a great life. We really did. And he left me a great life. He did. When he left, he made sure that I was okay and that I'd be okay. But, you know, my parents brought me up, and I'm sure your mother would tell you this. I think it was sort of a generation, you know, that they taught us how to make our own living. Like Mm -hmm. girls of our generation were taught to work and to be able to take care of themselves and not depend on anybody. And that's where I grew up. So my sister's a lawyer. And I'm a business person, but I mean, I will always be able to make a living. If you take every yeah. strip me down, take it all away, I can still make a living tomorrow because yeah. I have a brain. Which and gives you, there's so much confidence in that and comfort. Like, it's like, yes. you know, it really helps you just sleep a little easier that, you know, like, I'm not relying on this. I'm, I can always make something again. You know, I had a boss once who I hated, but he gave me one piece of advice and it was true. He said, the one thing that you can give your kids is an education because it's something they can really never get again and money can't, you know, money can buy, but it's like the one thing that you can't take away is their education. Yep. So I remembered that and I don't know, it had an impact on me so many times, but Allison went to private school in New York city and Mm -hmm. then she went, she graduated from Vanderbilt. She got a master's at Sotheby's in London in art history. I'm sorry, contemporary art. She never thought she'd be doing retail online selling masks for a living that I could tell you but she loves it and now we're pivoting from masks to sweatsuits and candles and you know things that are tie-dye that are very much our DNA of the brand well and also I mean you're guys are going down every angle of what people want right now like it's getting colder everyone's at home like I've seen it a few times I'm included like I've worn jeans maybe a handful of times the past nine months because why would I get up and do that like we have a sweatsuit that has a built-in mask yeah, and that's great. With a built-in mask. You see so many people doing, you know, pulling their shirt up over their, like, that's yeah, great. Really well with ear loop. Yeah. You know? So, we, you know, we're trying to do things that are practical and smart. But really, at the beginning of the pandemic, Ali and I started doing charity. Uh, uh-huh. We started Nauseous for Nurses, and we fed 
300,000 meals across America wow. over four months. Ali did it all. I helped raise the money, which we only raised 60,000. Most of it I put in, but she did all the work and we got a lot of donations from companies to donate, but she uh -huh. did all the work. She made all the phone calls and hooked it up. Literally like the guy's downstairs, he's in a red jacket because yeah. people couldn't enter the hospital. So we had oh, yeah. the hospital come outside. Like we really had it down pat and we did that. And then we pivoted to masks when we saw that there was a mask need. My <laughs> boyfriend and I were both in the business of clothing. And through my connections, I was able to go back to some of my resources who started making masks and we reached out to them and they, I got lucky. They make the most comfortable mask on the planet. And that's what yep. we've been told online over and over again. And that's why people buy Jill and Allie masks. And what were you doing right before that? So let's say, February, you know, January, February, December, were you, were you running a fashion business or were you? I was, you know what? I was about to sign like 25 licenses. One of you them are. was like 20. Yeah. Okay. And it all got next. Okay. So you, yeah, you were focusing on your brand and building up that side. I have a, I have a very successful rug line. It's, I have yep. an outdoor rug line. The prices are insane. They started like $40. Indoor rug line, they're pet proof. There isn't a pet stain that won't come out of my rugs. It's okay. unbelievable. And they're gorgeous. They're contemporary. They're modern. And then I have a new line of shag rugs that are coming out in January. And then I've got another extension of my outdoor rug line and pastels coming. So I was doing that. Then I was going to do bedding and I had a pet thing. I had all these things going yep. and the whole thing world blew up. So um, was it? I'm curious on that. Did people like your manufacturers just freeze? Like, yeah, you don't know what's happening. What's world. funny is with you having such a digital presence, that probably could have saved a lot of those manufacturers. So, oh my God. I, I said to them, why aren't you letting me do in the bedding line? I could sell so much of it. <laughs> right. Everyone's stuck at home. They want everyone bought new bedding. I know I like my friends that own parachute have skyrocketed this. I just bought more just came today because that's all I could buy that I want. I don't need clothes. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so I don't know what happened. And truthfully, I should probably follow up with them, but I got so busy doing other stuff. Yeah. Well, now you, instead of getting a what, you know, a typical licensing fee, you own the company, you've got equity, you've got something that you can actually build. I, could do both. I really could. Yeah. I could do both. I'm going to do a license in, in bags and like travel bags and stuff. And I could do bags myself. Like I, I think I showed you before, I have these mask bags and things yeah. like that. So I'm just going to do it in a small way myself. And I'm having a lot of fun making product. I'm making yeah. everything I want. I'm making phone cases. There you go. That have a snap and you can put your credit cards in. So you don't need to carry a pocket. We worked with, you know, Bandolier. I do. So I'm yeah. half their price. I'm going to be $49,000. So by the way, should we should talk after because I need to do marketing yeah. for this product and I'm going to sell it on my website and on Amazon. Yeah, smart. I guess what you obviously have made, for lack of a better word, enough money. So you're, it doesn't seem like the money, the income is what drives you. Like what drives you to like, when you saw this happening, I get the charitable side, but then what drove you to be like, I'm going to make a mask company. I'm going to go do this. Like you don't need to. So what is that? I want my daughter to do something. I wasn't going to yeah. let her sit home eating bonbons. Yeah. And, you know, wasting her brain because I did spend a million dollars on her education after all, which yeah. I like to remind her every day. Although now my mission with her is I wanted to apply to Harvard Business School. That's my new right. mission. She doesn't want to go. I said, but I want you to go. <laughs> so I <laughs> want to go. At some point it becomes that. I just signed up actually. I'm going to, I'm doing the, what's called their OPM program, which is like owner's president's program. Are you doing the one where you go there or the one online? The one that you go there for three weeks. Three weeks or three months? It's three weeks every year and a half, I think, or every year. No, it's three weeks every six months for three years. How hard was it to get in? Was it hard? Not really. Uh, no, I think, you, I think you'd be fine. I think you just have to have a qualifying business. That's what I want to do. I yeah. want to go for three weeks and learn. I can introduce you. Yeah, I haven't done it yet. And I'm hoping in my first sessions in May, I'm hoping we can be in person because I don't really want to do it online. <laughs> I was going to sign up for a class online because the teachers online are the same teachers in, in class. Yeah, they have tons of education online. It's the network and the people in the course too. I think it's super interesting. And, and I'm so, just a 
person. I would do great networking. Exactly. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I really love meeting other people doing interesting things and getting people like this is, I think, important in general for people listening, like going to places where other people are looking to grow themselves and build and are not done, so to speak, is such a great way to meet other people that can motivate you, educate you, you know, open doors for you because it, there's a lot of organizations like that, whether it's YPO, et cetera, that by nature, the people you're going to meet. Are, yeah. So I aged out. I was about, I could have joined like when I was like 48, but I uh -huh. let my stepson join because right. the only one one person in the company. Yep. And I asked him one thing. I said, invite us on the trips because we'll pay for them, but we want to go. And he never did. Oh, so, he, still, he still could. No, he won't. <laughs> However, my daughter now qualifies for YPO. Big yep. time. She, she should. I know a lot of New York YPO, or I guess you guys are in Boca right now, but I know a lot of New York YPO. I actually just reached out to a friend of mine who I got into YPO to reach back and tell him to find me someone in Florida to, for her to hook up. Oh, I know. I have my friends in Boca that's in the YPO chapter there. Oh, would you please do that today? Yeah. And I'll talk to him because I yeah. really, really I want already to. I was texting him this morning. Oh, fantastic. Because that, see, Allison needs to, her education didn't, wasn't entrepreneurial. Yeah. No, it's that well, makes sense. She needs a little bit. She and she needs to find mentors. Like my mentor is the former president of Macy's. Every day I yep. send him my Shopify sales. I send him my my marketing plan, and I ask him advice. Everybody and it creates accountability too, right? It, it helps you. You're accountable to someone else other than yourself, which is so important for entrepreneurs to find that person that you know keeps what he you. Made us do in order for me to take you know for him to do it because he's bored yeah. now, right? Because he was running a big company. Now he's bored. He's playing uh -huh. golf, but he's bored. Yeah. So he says to me, "What's your sales plan?" And we gave him a number for the month. He says, "No, no, 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 no. What's your daily sales plan from now till the end of the year?" We didn't have one. Wow. Now we do. Yeah. So it's all made up because we sell masks. There's no history. We have nothing yeah. to go by. But you know what? It's a plan. When and you start managing to it. it. Yep. Yeah, no, but and, and it makes you focus on certain things. So having a mentor, so your show is about, you know, people learning, you know, having a mentor, never never say no to anything unless it's illegal. Never say no to anything because you I think never that's know key. where that yes is going to go. No, that, that is so important. I, my partner talks about me that way all the time. When we first started, I'd take every phone call, go to every event, do, say yes to everything. It became... Like, I think that's a really important piece of advice because you never know where that opportunity is going to come from. Never. Unless yeah. it's illegal. And that's yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a good asterisk. I'm not even joking. No, I know. Yeah. It, I totally agree. You, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to get offered illegal stuff to do. It's going to happen. The amount of times I've been offered insider trading. Now, in the stock market, it's very clear what's legal and not legal, but graft and things like that in our business, you know, paying people to, yep. you know, cheating, like on Amazon is a perfect example. I heard that there are companies that can help you get likes, but if you do that and you get caught, you're thrown off. Yep. Don't do anything illegal. And I think on that note, because what you just said, focus on things that are sustainable, scalable, repeatable, because it's the, exactly that. The people that look for shortcuts that end up in trouble and that whether it's, you know, SEO shortcuts and black hat SEO that people do or the Amazon review stuff. That'll never happen to me. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Building great product and get, giving it to your customers, what should matter? Product or service. And yeah. packaging. You know, we're really yeah. into the delivery to the customer. And I spend a lot more money than I could or should, to be honest. Like I put stickers on things that cost money mm -hmm. because I want the experience to be so great that the next time I send an email to you, you open it. Yep. That's my thing. I want my, and by the way, we have an incredible, I don't know if you've gone behind the scenes of our Google analytics, but mm -hmm. you should look at them. Incredible. Our repeat customers like 6% or like really high numbers. 
mm-hmm. is what I've been told. Yeah, no, and that, and that I mean it. That is what matters. I mean, at the end of the day, if you have to buy every customer and every sale you make by doing marketing, you're not going to have a sustainable business. So you have to have a good customer experience. You have to have a good product. That's what actually makes these businesses grow. And if you're yeah, in it for the long run, I think you guys were getting a six to eight times return on our Facebook ads, which is good, right? right? Yeah, no, that's great. As long as you have good margins, which you do. So. Which we do. Yeah. But they can easily go away. Yeah. You know, with expenses that you shouldn't be spending money on, you know, and right. in a business, you try things, you know, like we talked about trying something before that's going to cost money. If it works, it's a win. If it doesn't, it goes right in, out of your profit. Yep. I was going to say, you have to take those risks because if not, you just sustain and sustaining in a business is dying. You're, you're going to slowly die if you don't continue to find new ways to innovate and build. You know what it reminds me of sitting at the blackjack table and playing $25 the entire night. Yeah. If you exactly. play $25 the entire night, you will go broke no matter how many runs you get. Yeah. You have to either up it or down it. Yeah. You can't just do what you're doing. It's the best analogy, really. Yeah, no, that's fair. Keep on doing the same thing. Right? Is that a good analogy? Yeah. No, one of my favorite things to do when I was younger in Vegas was to play the really cheap table and just live off free drinks. (laughs) The dollar table. Because I'm a scared player. Yeah. And And my grandfather, who's from five, or he's from Brooklyn, owned the Brooklyn meat market and lost it all in sports betting in the 70s. He, his best friend growing up was Paul Castellano. So he didn't, none of his debts got called in until John Gotti shot Paul. And then all his debts got called in by the mob once John Gotti took over. So my yeah. grandfather lost everything. He lived, but lost everything. Isn't Yeah. Well, they took his business. They took everything. So um, no, no, no. I, I wasn't even alive then. And he like passed away. But like the way they talk about it, like it was crazy at the time, but what a story, what a life. Like they lived really well for a very long time. And then, you know, once the kids were out, that's when everything went. Yeah. Well, and, you know, gambling tens of millions of dollars with the mafia is probably not the best way to live your life. <laughs> he had fun. He was in Goodfellas. Oh yeah. He had a he blast. Had yeah. My, yeah. I, I hear the stories. I was young when he passed, but I hear a lot of great stories about the guy, especially the fact that my godfather, who's my uncle, his godfather is Paul Castellano, the godfather. Like the head of the New York mafia was my uncle's godfather. Are you Jewish? Yeah, but they grew up, they went to kindergarten in Brooklyn together. So they just grew up as childhood when it was all mixed in. And then he went to the five towns. Paul stayed in Brooklyn, but my grandfather owned again the Brooklyn meat market. So did you watch Goodfellas and like think of your family? Because that was in the five towns. She lived in the five towns, you know? Yeah, I didn't. I watched that along before I, this connection that I found out only happened like the past decade when I found out like, wait, like I always heard about like my grandfather, you know, the gambling side, my mom taught me from a young age, don't gamble or people are not good at gambling. (laughs) But you don't win gambling. Did you see the casinos? No, a hundred percent. I, yeah. When I gamble, it's for fun, not because I think I'm actually going to make any money. Yeah. I learned a bit more recently. So last couple of questions for you, by the way, one is what would be a piece of advice you'd have for, you've given a lot, but someone that really wants to pursue their dreams. I mean, you're someone that at six years old, five years old, as you said, knew you wanted to be famous, even though you don't quite remember that. And now fast forward, it's been, you know, it ended up happening even kind of serendipitously without you seeking it. Like, what would you think for someone that has their own dreams? Right. So I believe that certain things are destiny and certain things, there are opportunities in your life. I'm a big believer in God and I believe in messages and I get messages all the time from Bobby. Things happen for a reason, always. Like I had an offer on a house. I thought I had the house. It didn't happen. I'm devastated. But when the next house comes and I do get it, I'm going to look back and go, that's why I didn't get that house. And that's the way life is. However, so I think that you have to, you know, listen to the universe. 
The universe talks to you. You have to listen to it. It guides you. You know, I always say this, God can't, and, and this is, you know, I'm a believer in God, but God can't talk to you. He's not going to pick up the phone and say, Jill, take the offer, but he's going to show me the way. And it's up to me to take it or not. He got, okay, James called me, right? The first guy, that was faith. You know, like that was God calling me, right? So I could have said no. Yeah. And I would have gone in another direction. So you kind of have to listen to the universe, which way it's taking you. Really dig it. Your gut will always steer you. Yep. Trust your gut. When it doesn't feel right, it's not right. And you know what's right for you. You don't have to ask people. We all know what's right for us. Say yes to everything, like I said, as long as it's not illegal, which is very funny <laughs> considering this year's history. So yep. that's your ca- you're going to add that caveat now to your insane. 100%. <laughs> and you have to be willing to take a risk if you want to be an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur isn't for everyone. And recognize that. If you can't take a risk, like I told you that I can't go to a casino and make money because I'm a scared gambler. If you're a scared gambler, you're never going to make money. Because if yep. I'm not willing to up my bet when I'm on a roll, I can never win because if I'm not upping when I'm winning, how am I ever going to win? But I'm scared to up because I don't want to lose. Now in business, I'm a little bit different. I have a deeper pocket. I have more confidence in myself and I have enough money that I can make it. And I'm willing to say, if I lose a half a million, if I lose a million, if I lose a hundred thousand, I'll be okay. And I'm in a fortunate position to do that, but I'm willing to take a calculated risk. I'm not just throwing it on a casino floor. I think that's the money that I'm spending. I'm choosing where to spend it, how to spend it. I'm interviewing people, you know, everything is educated, but there's the risk that in the mask business, which is very risky. If the cure is found and nobody buys masks, I have a million dollars worth of masks in my garage. So I have to be willing to eat that risk. If you can't stomach it, it's not for you. And that's okay. Then work yeah. for an entrepreneur, be a senior VP, be a CFO, be a controller, be a salesperson, and that's okay. And maybe one day you will have the confidence and the bankroll. Don't ever put it all in. Don't, totally go all agree. in. Don't put your life savings into your dream. You yep. got to get a partner. And that's another thing my boss told me always that you need to have a partner in everything you do. And although yep. I don't have a financial partner, I have life partner, you know, my boyfriend, I have my daughter, I have my mentor, have a mentor. So I don't make decisions unilaterally. I like to have support in big decisions. So yep. this was, it's, if I make a mistake, I'm not the only one who thought it, you yep. know, like, well, you no, thought so too, you know? Smart. So no, um, think- those are like my little pearls of wisdom. Being no, that, that, I think it's super important. I mean, the, the couple of things there, like people think you have to go all, like when they hear risk, they hear all in. And it's like, it's not all in, it's calculated risk. It's measured risk. It's hedged risk. It's not just blind risk. That's, as you said, that's going in gambling. That's going to the casino. Like if you, like the way entrepreneurs take risk is usually very pragmatic and calculated. And losses happen, but there's usually so much upside that event, you know, over time, you win. You know, everybody wants to look at Jeff Bezos. He's a billionaire. He's the second richest man in the world. Blah, 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 blah. He took so much risk. Yeah. He probably mortgaged his house. Well, his wife financed him for three years. There you go. And his company didn't make money. I don't even know if it's making money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Maybe it is. Maybe He's it making money. I'm sure. So much money. You know, with companies yeah. making so much money because it's public. But yeah. he took so much risk. You know, he calculated on the on people shopping online. Yeah. And he did free shipping. Do you know how much that costs? Yeah, exactly. And it costs all of us because now we all have to give free shipping because he does. Exactly. And what he did was exactly what you're saying, which is he didn't make a lot of profit, but his genius and insanity was, well, we're not going to profit right now so that I can grab market share. And other people try to do that and fail miserably. It's not a good case study. It worked out, but it was, there was a lot of insanity in that too. There is, but he was using other people's money by that point. Right. Exactly. 
I'm talking about like in the beginning or when you look at like Apple, the founder of Apple, you know, when he started yeah. all the risks that he took. Yeah. And that, you know, another thing, a piece of advice I would give is before you get started, read as many business books as you can from books that you know have been proven to be successful for a lot of people. Read biographies. If you want to go in the car business, then read Lee Iacocca's biography, even if it is 20 years old. There's lessons to be learned. If you want to be in the internet, read Zappos' book. Read yep. you know, any of these books. And listen, I wish I had time to read them all. I've read a few or I skimmed a few. Podcasts like this, amazing. You're sitting yep. in the car, listen to books online. Yep. Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of wisdom in those books. They write those books because they want to teach you their lessons, what they did right and wrong. Yep. So don't ignore it. You know, again, the messages, right? So you're listening to this podcast today. I'm giving you messages. You could listen or you could ignore. Yeah. If I were you, I'd go online now and buy a book. Maybe you have a book to recommend that you think is really good for people listening to your show. Funny enough, one of my favorite books that nobody knows, so I always like going to it, is Appetite for Self-Destruction by Steve Knopper, Rolling Stone author. It's all about the music industry's appetite for self-destruction. They, they consistently don't adapt with the times, don't innovate, don't want to change, and then someone else eats their lunch. Apple owns iTunes, Spotify, tech company. Why didn't Universal Music do that? Why didn't you know Warner Music do that? It's there, And this is not one time. Time. This happened throughout the past century. And it's a whole book about that that I read when I first graduated college. And it's always been in the back of my mind of like, you have to watch your business, your industry, and the it's disruption. Like appetite that's for destruction. Appetite self, for self destruction by Steve Knopper. And so I, this spark, it's funny, last week it's, I brought it up again. And I was like, I wonder who that author, what he's doing now. Why don't you get him on your show? So I just reached out to him. I'm talking to him on Thursday. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, Find your favorite books and get those authors on here. Like my daughter yep. can tell you, she's a big reader. You know, my biggest challenge, so like what are my character flaws? And it's not even a character flaw. My biggest problem is I don't read fast. Yeah. At business, it's a big down problem because I can't skim quickly. I get so many emails and text messages. I can't get through them. My daughter, she's, and you know what? She digests it all. And you know why? Because I sent it to a place called Supercamp at Stanford University when she was like 11 years old and they taught her how to speed read. Nice. I knew what I was doing for her, yeah. saved her life. That's why she did so well in school because she could read faster than everyone else. So yeah. I would say, you know, if you're young, learn how to speed read. Yeah, that's you smart. Know? Because especially with the internet and all this data all the time, how do you digest all these reports? And that's another thing, skills. I don't hire anyone without skills. I mean, I do, but they don't get paid well. Yeah. The only people who get paid well are people who know how to use Illustrator, and I'm talking about, I'm on the internet. Yeah, right? I of course. Shopify, internet, ads. Like I need people who are technical. Yeah. You know, who can do Illustrator and photo. And if you don't know how to use the internet, if you don't know how to use programs, you're really useless going forward. Yeah. I'm outdated, but I'm an I mean, owner. I have money already. But if I was young, I wouldn't be employed. Right. And the, I think the key is the ability to learn because these things change so fast. You just got to be able to roll your sleeves up and learn new things. So and the value of your company is your tech, is your knowledge of all the stuff we're talking about that yep. behind the scenes. Yep, exactly. Which has to always change. So last question for me, what's next? What do you see in the future? I think I'm going to start a mass club. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think I'm going to start a mass club. I wish I knew. I mean, the one thing that just eats at me every day that I don't, so what don't I sleep about? Mm -hmm. 
I don't sleep because I know masks are going to end. I hope they do because for all of us, I don't think they're going to end completely. But once the cures start to come, people will buy less and less masks and jewelry. It won't become part of their life as much. Even though they have to do it, they won't care about you know fashion. So we're really gearing up to try to try other things. I'm doing candles. We're going to do sweatsuits, you know, loungewear and all this stuff. Yeah. But, you know, much bigger financial investment. You know, investing in masks yeah. was a low price. Now, if I'm buying clothing and I have to buy a thousand units, I'm buying, you know, $60,000 for one SKU, that's yep. money for me. Well, and you have sizing problems. You have all of it. Master yeah. one size fits all. Yep. So that's going to be a challenge for me. You know what I mean? How to pivot. Yep. I want to do jewelry, you know, but there's a lot of jewelry out there. So yep. it's always, so that's what I don't sleep about at night. So we yep. do have a lot of products coming. Like I said, I did a mask bed. I did a phone case. Not that I'm hitting anything against the wall. I'm hitting things against the wall that I need and I like. Yep. Smart. And that's that's where I'm starting. Yeah, being your own customer is not a bad thing. That's yeah, smart. Well, Jill, thank you so much for being on Hawk Talk. This was awesome. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO. We can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.